following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 19, 31 and following, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth in order that you may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Our Father, please magnify our vision of the Savior. May nothing but glory and honor attend him. He cannot be enlarged by us, but our view of him can certainly be enlarged. And we ask this as we consider this word of yours in Jesus' name. Amen. I realized middle of last week as I was preparing for this message, it came to me with a start that it was the very day on which one of my church history heroes had died, a man who's been a human hero to me for a very long time, well before his recent rediscovery by many people. It was April 9th, 1945. They say it was a fine spring day, probably like today, in a place called Flossenburg, Germany. A Nazi prison camp held a number of prisoners, and on that April morning, 69 years ago, Several of them were led out from the jail into some woods nearby. They knew where they were going. They were taken to a hastily, crudely built gallows. The men were asked to be stripped of their clothing, and they were hung by the neck until they were dead. Their bodies were taken down and unceremoniously doused with gasoline and burned. One of those bodies belonged to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the true heroes of the Christian faith in the 20th century. You have to know where this man came from to know what a hero he really was. He was a son of privilege. His father was perhaps the most eminent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Germany at the University of Berlin. 
He grew up in a home of privilege and wealth. His family could travel and do almost anything. He was educated in the best schools. Bonhoeffer was highly intelligent, nearly genius level. In his early 20s, his Ph.D. thesis was immediately published, and he was marked as being a gifted theologian. Everyone could see he would be prominent as a professor. He taught briefly in New York City as the war was breaking out or starting to break out. He could have sat out the war in New York City teaching safely in a seminary. He chose instead deliberately to take a ship back to Europe and re-enter Germany just before the borders were closed, not in order to support the Nazi state, but to oppose it. And with his writings and with radio broadcasts, one of which was abruptly pulled from the air as he was speaking, and with his views that stood against the majority church of Germany that was completely silent against Hitler, Bonhoeffer courageously spoke, a young, strong voice, and he was put in jail. And he was a marked man. It's so interesting that he died April 9th. If you know your World War II history, the war with Germany ended the first week of May, one month before the war ended. Bonhoeffer was killed because he was on a list that Hitler had issued No matter what happens, if we all go down, these people are going down with us. And so, perhaps one of the most promising potential theologians, a man who loved Christ in a true way, was removed from us at the age of 39. An eyewitness was there the morning Bonhoeffer was taken out, and he recorded a military man who was in that jail and survived the war. Here's something he wrote about what happened that morning. He said, Dietrich, being the only minister present, spoke to us that Sunday morning briefly and informally from 1 Peter 1.3, and I remember the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by His great mercy has caused us to be born anew by a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Shortly after Dietrich had talked with his fellow prisoners, A guard came and called out, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come forward. And Dietrich knew what the call was for, and he said to his fellows, This is the end, but for me it is the beginning of life. He knelt and prayed for a minute, and then they watched him go, and the witness who wrote this said he was fully composed and brave, and he said, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Those words struck me because I'm here to speak to you today not just about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a human being that deserves honor as a courageous martyr to the truth, but I want to tell you about an even younger man who died more totally submissive to the will of God. John's gospel is the only one that tells of Jesus' dead body on the cross and what happened from that point onward. And the author himself was an eyewitness. That's very important. You know, John never says, I. 
And he's not saying I in verse 35 when he says, he who saw it has borne witness, but we know he's talking about himself. I was there. And I am testifying to you that every word here was true. It happened in real history so that you might believe. And what John and the others saw that afternoon by about three o'clock was an unnatural darkness over the land that no one knew how to explain. The corpse of Jesus hung limp then. His head was bowed. His body was streaked with dirt and sweat and grime. I'm sure the flies were buzzing about him. And Isaiah 53, verse 3, was being fulfilled. He was as one from whom we would hide our faces. He was despised and rejected by man. I don't have a morbid special interest in the examination of the hardest aspects of death. But this is a death we have to pay close attention to because there are wider lessons that emerge. And let John be our instructor this morning about a couple of them. First of all, that which comes out through verse 36 of this text where John sees it as a vital thing that Scripture prophecy was being fulfilled in this, not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, the Romans, you know, they didn't invent crucifixion. It's hard to say who invented it actually, but others had done it before them. They really just sort of brought the art of it to a high perfection, not only in a cruel and painful way to put a body to death, but then to use the crucifixion as a political lesson. Their way was to leave bodies on the crosses for days and weeks until they weren't bodies anymore. Because to do that was to give the lesson to the public who might undertake any crimes like these crimes and say, is this how you want to end up? Don't mess with Rome. But Jesus died on the preparation day of the Jewish high Sabbath of Passover. The holy day began at sundown, so it was just a few hours away at the time of death. And the law of Moses decreed that dead bodies should not be touched on a Sabbath. If they were, the one touching that body was automatically unable to eat of the Passover. There's no ritual of cleansing to escape that. If you touch the dead body on Passover day, you could not participate in Passover. Also, the fact of Deuteronomy 21 gave an order that anyone executed as a criminal ought to be buried the same day. So there were at least two very strong reasons based in the law of God why those bodies shouldn't stay there. And fortunately, the temple authorities had enough strength of will to be able to assert themselves and get the Romans to take the bodies down as we read. I don't know what your experience is with a broken bone. I've heard of people breaking a bone and not knowing they broke it until let's say their ankle or foot swole up a lot and discolored and, oh, I must have broken something. But quite often if you break a bone, it can be very, very painful. My one and only broken bone experience of my whole life was in a touch football game in college. A bunch of guys just fooling around and the ball carrier, I'll never forget that he was the vice president, the son of the vice president of the college. 
known as one of the worst roughnecks in the whole school. And he was carrying the ball and heading right for me. I was bigger than him. I thought I could stop him. He probably saw that I was bigger than him and wanted to stop him. So he threw up his elbow and delivered it to the middle of my face and broke my nose. And I went down. And I don't even remember hitting the ground. I just remember, oh, you really do see stars. That really hurt. Really hurt. Well, instead of an elbow to your nose, imagine a decent-sized sledgehammer or maybe an iron bar heavier at one end and picture that those who hung on the crosses, the head of the victim was probably not more than maybe eight feet, nine feet off the ground, so the legs were, were right there. If I'm a man with a heavy instrument, those legs are right there in front of me. And, of course, the measure of breaking the legs, you, you should understand. You know, how do you die? Victims of crucifixion die of suffocation when you can't breathe anymore. Well, you can, you know, breathe a long time as long as you can push yourself up and draw in, you know, get some air in. But if you can't push yourself up at all, you're soon going to die. So along comes the soldier with the instrument that had a Latin name, curifragium. It literally, basically in our translation, means bone crusher. Wham! Right on your lower leg bones. You would not be pushing yourself up anymore to draw a breath. You know, you could say it was a measure of mercy because you died quicker. But now you're not only suffocating, but your legs are throbbing with agony as well and you die. Well, the text says they had to do that for the two thieves, but somehow they looked at Jesus and said, well, he's dead. We don't have to do it for him. So his bones were not broken. And John sees this as a significant thing. He remembers, of course, that Exodus 12 verse 46 gave an instruction regarding that particular day and, and what was happening in the households of Israel right at that time. The Passover lamb was being readied for the meal of the next day. And one of the instructions of Exodus 12 was, no bone should be broken in the preparation and cooking of the animal for the Passover meal. Trivial little thing, you say. What real difference does that make? Well, John was saying, look, God is a God of trivial little things. And when it came to his son being the Passover lamb, after all, John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That prophecy was going to be fulfilled. And I'm sure John probably also thought about Psalm 34, 20, where it speaks of the Lord's servant. And it says, The Lord keeps all his bones, and not one of them shall be broken. And so the requirements to be the final Passover lamb, what John is saying to you is, look, do you get it? And of course, most people do. He's the qualified Passover lamb, even down to these kinds of trivial little detail. His bones were not broken. Jesus came through this horrible ordeal of crucifixion whole. 
Hurt? Of course. Exhausted? Of course. Dead? Of course. But he was whole and unconquered through a wrenching process in order to be an unbroken Lamb of God and an unbroken great physician who can come to heal broken and crushed human spirits. One commentator calls him, calls his being there the triumph of the slaughtered lamb. I've never had to slaughter a farm animal. I'm sure killing a lamb is something I'm glad if I'm going to have lamb for a meal, somebody else has done it for me and put it in the nice antiseptic package wrapped with cellophane. But a slaughtered lamb certainly doesn't look very much like a triumphant animal, does it? We think of Revelation and when the picture of Christ is seen at the throne by John and there's a lamb there looking as if he'd been slain and John wonders what that is and then he sees it's Christ. Well, here's Christ, unbroken, so that Isaiah 42 could be fulfilled when we read, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, he was not broken, and therefore he can specialize in dealing with people who are. Cracked, broken lives, ruined lives requiring wholeness and mending and healing are in his hands. He picks up all the Humpty Dumpty people, you know, who fall off the wall and have a great fall and nobody can put them back together again. Believe me, we meet these people. Some of these people are worshiping in the sanctuary. There are broken lives among us. They're not just in the great cities among those addicted to drugs and all kinds of family strife and chemical dependence and all those things. There are people with broken hearts, broken minds, broken relationships. The unbroken Savior is the one who mends. He's qualified to mend. Now, secondly, besides this fulfillment of his legs not needing to be broken, there's another thing here, and it comes in the last act that happened to him on the cross. He was already dead. You wonder why the soldier had to do this, but either he thought, well, I'll make sure he's dead, or he just was being cruel, and Roman soldiers were pretty good at that. But he walks past the cross of Jesus and takes his spear and jabs it into his chest. And John makes another claim. He says, I saw something, a flow of blood and water from his side. Now, this was such a sight to John that it struck him as being totally remarkable and so much so that he, he had to assure you, I saw this in verse 35. I tell you it was true. He wants to assert this is no myth that just arose years afterwards from the cross. I was there. I saw this emblem, and I believe it was an emblem from God. Now, I have to trust physicians who've written about what happened at the cross. I'm not a physician, of course. Blood, I know, doesn't ordinarily flow in any plentiful way from a dead body. The heart stops beating. There's no pressure of the pump moving the blood, and it coagulates and so on. 
And some people think, well, if the dead body of Jesus issued out blood, that must have been miraculous. And some commentators will argue for that. I don't think that's the answer here. We think it's a better, better explained by what physicians say, that probably the spear pierced the pericardial sac of Jesus' heart. If you study your biology, you know your heart is encased in a, a membrane, a sac around it that contains clear fluid. And I'm told that, that when the body is, is very stressed, fluid increases in that sac, and it, the pericardial sac actually is enlarged. And if that spear indeed pierced that and his heart, and he was hanging upright so gravity was working, of course fluid still filling his heart and filling that sack, transparent fluid flowed out. John calls it water. You say, big deal. I mean, really, why are we making so much of this? Why does John insist this was so important? Well, if for no other reason, it's certainly certified the, the ridiculousness of those who would argue what they call the swoon theory, that Jesus was taken down off the cross, not entirely dead, and he just awakened in the cool tomb and walked off and lived happily ever after. Absurdity, but there are people who will maintain it to this day. A spear to the heart kind of takes care of that, doesn't it? But beyond asserting that he was dead, John sees in that blood that flowed the shedding of blood without which there is no remission for sin. Here again, he was remembering Scripture. And he was, of course, remembering what day it was or what day it was about to be, just an hour or so to come. What did you do on Passover Eve? You put the blood on the doorposts to remember the deliverance of the angel of God from the plague of death over the entire land of Egypt. And John is obviously saying, here's the Passover blood spilled by the Lamb of God himself. And it is put on the doorposts of lives, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, in this act. I was there. I saw it. I declare to you that in blood and water, the Passover lamb was certified by God. Water has complicated symbolism in John, but maybe not so complicated in that it represents the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and their cleansing action in a life. As when Jesus said in John 7 that those who profess him and come to faith in him, out of them, will, out of their inner being will flow rivers of living water. And so even that transparent pericardial fluid had a symbolism that was important. And we all can think of the great hymn we have in Christian faith. One of the more beloved ones in either of the tunes we sing it. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Double cure. You need a double cure. A cure of righteousness to cover your sin and a cure of Holy Spirit new life to cleanse you and make you God's new vessel. Be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. John was an old man when he wrote his gospel. You know, these things happened. We think John was possibly around Jesus' age, maybe still in his 20s. He was an old man, at least my age, which was old in those days, really old. He was probably in his 60s, at least, when he wrote the gospel. 
And I can picture this longest lived of the apostles as an old man with his quill pen writing this particular narrative of the gospel about the water and the blood and asserting I was there, I saw it. And I, folks, I wasn't there, and I don't want to just elaborate with, you know, sentimental things that I can't prove, but I'll bet this old apostle was weeping when he wrote, the water and the blood poured out from the Lamb of God. I saw this with my own eyes. Charles Spurgeon is always quotable. He said about this, O world, God's Christ has marked you with his blood and he means to claim you. Blood and water from the pierced heart of God's own Son fell on this dark and defiled planet and thus Jesus sealed this place as his own until he transforms it at last into a new heaven and a new earth as the final home of righteousness. The Lamb of God marked this world with his blood. That leaves a question in the third place today, a question for each of you to answer. I'll ask it this way. In what attitude will you look upon this pierced Lamb of God? In what attitude will you look on him? You see, At the end of the Old Testament, there's another prophecy, and verse 37 of our text is quoting it. If you want to look in your marginal notes, you'll probably see what verse is being quoted in verse 37. You should see it saying, Zechariah 12.10. Now, I dare say not too many of you began your day today with devotions in the book of Zechariah. Maybe you should sometime. It's a great book. But there's a prophecy there in Zechariah 12 that tells of the day when God's messenger to Israel would come and would be pierced. And people would look upon the messenger of God who is pierced. Here's exactly what the text says, Zechariah 12.10. When they look upon me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep as one weeps for a firstborn. And the text goes on a little bit. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, 13.1 of Zechariah, it says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The piercing of God's messenger and the sorrow in which everyone looks on him will mark the opening of a fountain for cleansing. Are you looking on the one who was pierced, Jesus Christ, with the same awed and amazed adoration that John did? I'm not asking you to to look with admiration or sentimental recognition on a human martyr like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's an important man, worthy of recognition. But I'm asking you to look with focused faith on the death of someone who was the premier death of all history. Look to Christ as the wounded vessel, wounded for you, bruised for you, bloodshed for you, providing in his death the particular fulfillment down to the last iota of a detail of what God required, doing what you can't do no matter how hard you try to do it. Here is the slaughtered lamb of God who rules the universe. And you need to look on him and see that is in him 
as you study him and gaze on him and adore him throughout your life, there is what the Bible promises, life for a look at this Savior, a steady, lifelong look of faith. That's what I call you to. Look on him in that way. However, there's another way. And some people will look on him only this way, and it hasn't happened yet in history, but it will. If you will not fulfill Zechariah 12.10 in a gaze of faith on the unbroken vessel of God, Jesus Christ pierced for you, the Scripture says you will stand among another group of people who one day at the very end of history will look at him, but quite differently. Revelation 1-7 is the reference point. John also wrote that book. And the book is hardly opened, Revelation 1, verse 7, when John writes this about the coming of Christ in future history. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And then take heed what it says, and all tribes of earth will wail because of him. You will look on the pierced Christ with faith and adoration and trust for eternal life, or you will, on history's last day, wail, because then he comes as your judge. It will be too late to trust him. And you will do what Jesus himself said in Matthew and other places. You will cry out for the mountains to fall on you instead of receiving the judgment that he will have to bring to say, depart from me. I have never known you at all. If Jesus on the cross does not save you, Christ on his final glorious throne must condemn you. If Christ in his death according to the Father's plan is not your key to eternal life, Christ in his final appearing in history will and must exile you to eternal death. No two ways about it. Now there's a quick practical application before I close. Something I've observed in decades of pastoral ministry. Which of two fundamental ways you look upon Christ? crucified determines your entire ability to deal with death while you're still alive on this earth. We have a family in our church dealing with the hardest, cruelest kind of blow that death can deliver. How do you deal if it was your family, if it was your 32-year-old son or brother or husband? How do you deal with that? What future hope do you bring to that look upon the human body of somebody who was warm and alive just a few days ago and we would have said has 50 years to live yet? But what you do is largely determined by how you have looked already on the body of the pierced one, Jesus Christ. And so the prime question is this, what have you done with him who was pierced? Why not look to him today? Cry out to him in reverent trust and deep praise and unbridled joy despite the horror of the cross. You see, we can have joy at the cross because we know what comes next. 
unlike John, you see, John didn't know what was coming when, when he stood there and gazed horrified at this blood pouring out of Jesus' chest. But when he wrote the book, he knew the end. And we know the end. We know, Lord willing, what we'll be singing and praising God for next Sunday morning. So, Christian friends, I say, may you never take your amazed, adoring, believing eyes away from the life-giving, blessed sight of the pierced one, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father, the most horrible sight that we could imagine is the greatest thing we could imagine. We thank and praise you for your Son. Even there, broken in, not in his bones, but in his human form and appearance, dirty, covered with grime and blood, We would not even want to look at him. We would want to run away. But as we look and as we trust and as we say, his father destined him to be there, and he was there for me, we discover something utterly wonderful. And so we thank and praise you. We cover his head with glory. Thank you for the Lamb of God slain for us. Amen.